Well, I hope so, because this morning we're going to look at a passage in the New Testament, one of my favorite passages, one of the most highly quoted and influential passages in the book of Acts, chapter 17, where Paul goes to Mars Hill. I will be reading the passage. You're certainly welcome to follow along in your Bible. If you can't find it, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Acts. When people don't laugh at that joke, I get very, very nervous. <laughs> Acts chapter 17. By the way, in this passage, Paul visits two cities. We'll move through kind of quickly, but then we'll hone in on his experience at Mars Hill because I think it best parallels where we find ourselves in this cultural moment. So in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia... They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths he reasoned them from the scriptures, explaining and proving it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were per persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women." Now, keep in, moment, Paul, keep in mind, Paul left the Philippian jail, traveled 33 miles to Amphipolis, 27 miles to Apollonia, 35 miles to Thessalonica. That's 95 miles. It's only 48 miles from here to Fresno. In case you're thinking, but yeah, I'm sure Paul didn't have to go through these windy roads through the mountains you are missing how much tougher it was to travel then you, because you and I have this amazing invention called air conditioning in cars. This would have taken days upon days to walk or be on horseback to go this far. And what does Paul do when he gets to Thessalonica? He goes straight to the synagogue to minister first to the Jews for three Sabbaths, so at least three weeks. But notice what he didn't do. He didn't show up and start debating politics. He didn't show up and start talking about ethnic differences between Jews and between Greeks. What did he do? He showed up and he kept the main thing, the main thing. He talked about the person of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about politics and other cultural issues. Of course we should. But we always have to remember, what's our goal and what's the main thing we want to accomplish? In this case, Paul wanted to see people come to Jesus, so he focuses on Jesus. And it tells us amazingly, some Jews and Greeks and women were persuaded. Basically, anybody can respond to this message of the gospel, which is inclusive for all. By the way, what's fascinating, we're often told that Christianity is anti-women. Well, in the early church, it was women who were flooding to the Christian message because of the value for women, how they were treated, how they were respected. When I hear people say, well, the church is anti-women, I think there's an awful lot of women who've understood the message of Jesus and clearly didn't get that memo. Everybody is called to follow Jesus. Now, what happens in light of this? It says in verses 5 through 9, it says that in jealousy, they formed a mob and ran Paul and Silas out of town. So now they travel 45 miles. Again, that's basically traveling on footback or horseback from footback. You meant what I knew. From <laughs> foot or horseback from here to Fresno. 
That's how far he goes. And he shows up in a town called Berea. Here's what it says in verse 10 of Acts 17. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, without not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. Notice the pattern here shows up in a city. Where does Paul go? Straight to the synagogue. But they received this message very differently because the Bereans were known for examining the scriptures, studying the scriptures. That was their barometer that they would compare new ideas to. This is one of the best things my dad taught me in life is the authority of scripture and to run ideas through the filter of scripture. I recently had a chance to interview a friend of mine. His name is Michael Wilder. If you've heard of the band Addison Road, he, was, he began this road. He's the lead singer. Well, Michael Wilder became a Christian during his Mormon mission. Right? Isn't that interesting? He wrote a book where he chronicles this. It's so good called Passport to Heaven. But he told me, I asked him, he said on his mission, he decided to go visit a Baptist church. And felt like if I could convince the pastor, this would make my mission a win. Well, this pastor treated him kindly, but he goes, son, you got to know the scriptures. I challenge you on your Mormon mission to read the New Testament. And he read it. And over that time, over months and months, slowly began to realize he had a faulty view of the person of Jesus and became a Christian at the end of his Mormon mission. What does this tell us about? Like the Bereans, if you study scripture and have an open heart and open mind, that's a dangerous thing to do. One of the most popular blogs I wrote, I don't know, three or four years ago, I think the title is um, what, like five books to give a new Christian or no, five books to give a non-Christian. And I highlight books like The Case for Christ, More Than a Carpenter, common evangelistic books. You know what my number one book is? The Gospel of John. If somebody is open to considering the claims of Christ, the first thing I want to do that is get them into the scriptures because the scriptures have the power of God. And that's what the church and, or the synagogue and the people in Berea did. And it tells us again that many people believed. Well, now they're run out of town again. Some agitators from Berea followed them to Thessalonica run them out of town, and now they head to a place called Mars Hill in Athens where we're going to focus a little bit more. Why? I doubt any of us here are going to get run out of town for sharing our faith. But we might get mocked. We might get ridiculed. That's what happens to Paul on Mars Hill. Now, Athens, by the way, at this stage in the first century... It wasn't the height that it was centuries earlier, but it's still, even actually to this day, it's still the capital of Greece and the largest city in Greece, one of the largest cities in the area. And as you walked into Greece, you would see physical idols of their God along the roads, in the marketplace, by the ports. You would see a visual reminder of the kind of gods that they worshiped in Greece at this time. And this is where Paul heads. So it says in verse 16, again, Acts 17, verse 16, 
It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now notice, Paul went to Thessalonica. He went to Berea to minister. That's not why he went to Athens. He's waiting there, but he can't help himself because he sees himself as a minister wherever he goes to start ministering to people. But it also says his spirit was provoked. Now, this has not told us it's a bad thing. Our spirit should be provoked, but we should be provoked at the right things. And the problem is often at Christians, we get provoked on secondary things, not the right things. What provoked Paul is idols. He's walking around Athens and he sees these visual idols. When I was saying this passage, I thought, I wonder what Jesus or Paul would think if they're walking through my hometown of San Juan Capistrano, or going down to the harbor at Dana Point, or walking along the beach in Laguna Beach, or wherever you're from. Now, he wouldn't see visual idols, I presume, not knowing where you're from, but Paul and Jesus would see the same kind of idols today, wouldn't he? Idols of large social media followings, idols of appearance, idols of materialism. These are the things that should provoke us. But in reality, I see a lot of Christians getting provoked at secondary issues rather than core issues like what provoked Paul. So Paul is provoked because he sees these idols in this city. Verse 17 says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So not only did Paul see himself as a missionary, that was his identity. See, one of the problems for us is we think, oh, we have hired missionaries. We put in our money and they go share Jesus. We have hired pastors. They go work and minister to people. The downside of that is we forget that being a missionary is a part of who we are. Wherever God has called you, you and I are called to minister there. So Paul ministers while he's traveling through a city. He ministers in the synagogue and he ministers in the marketplace because Paul saw himself as a follower of Jesus, as a missionary. Here's the bottom line. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a missionary. Sometimes just shifting our mindset opens up possibilities for spiritual conversation and ministering that we miss. Verse 18 it says, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, Epicureanism was widely known in this day for valuing pleasure as the chief good. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> The deities and worldviews that Paul was interacting with are not that different from today. They're not. But what's interesting, what, is they just call, what do they call Paul a what? This is the participatory part of the program. A babbler, you got it. They call Paul a babbler. You know, in Acts 26, they call Paul insane. In 1 Corinthians 4, they call him a fool. And in 2 Corinthians 6, they call Paul an apostor. Why? Why do they call him this? You know why? Because Paul preached this absurd, 
crazy idea that a dead man actually walked again. That's why. You see, when I see something like this, I ask myself the question, who am I trying to please? Because Paul was not playing for the applause of the audience. Paul was playing for the applause of his heavenly father. He was playing for an audience of one. And if you do that, what's going to happen? You're going to get insulted. Babbler, fool, imposter, etc. Because of the way social media works, I basically get insulted daily. If I read all of the comments, I'm sure it's hourly, if not more. You know what I ask myself when I get insulted? I ask myself, am I getting insulted for the right things? If I was a jerk, that's on me. If I was glib, that's on me. If it's a secondary issue, I shouldn't have died on that hill, that's on me. If it's because I'm preaching Jesus and the truth, I can live with that. I can live with that. So if you're going to share your faith, if you're going to stand out boldly, you're going to get insulted like Paul did. Just make sure it's for the right things. Friends, the gospel is offensive enough. Let us not add anything to it in the way we live, but let us also not subtract from the offense of the gospel. Amen? Good. I knew there were some Baptists here. <laughs> Verse 19. It says, And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. You realize what this is like? This is the ancient version of people scrolling through TikTok. It's the same thing. They're not asking Paul. They're not saying, Paul, we're considering repenting. We want to know who Jesus is. They're just intrigued because they're bored and they live their lives wanting new ideas. Paul's saying something new, so come and entertain us. Paul's like, fine, you let me preach Jesus, I'll show up and I'll preach Jesus. These people basically say, we just want new ideas. In some ways, we fall into this trap, don't we? We think something new must be better. This is one of the big barriers for C.S. Lewis when he was an atheist. He always thought newer ideas were better. He calls it chronological snobbery. But it's only when he came to believe that actually new ideas are not better. Sometimes they can be worse. And sometimes it's the oldest ancient ideas that are the best that he could come to Christ. So now in verse 22 is where Paul begins his speech on the Areopagus. And here's where we get some very practical steps how to have spiritual conversations with people. Verse 22, it says, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus. By the way, this is an area where they would invite people to give speeches. So it's kind of like Hollywood. Hollywood has far more actors and actresses that can get roles but everybody's there competing to try to get that role. Areopagus was like this. This was kind of an honor where they would ask people they thought had something interesting to say to preach, and they'd evaluate the ideas. So Paul is standing up in this famous area. The question is, how does he address these people? And it says this. It says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, 
I found an altar within this, this inscription to the unknown God. Notice how Paul starts. Paul doesn't start by talking about God's judgment. He doesn't start by calling them idolaters. He doesn't start with criticism. You know what Paul starts with is common ground. Paul starts off by saying, hey, I've been very observant and I'm paying attention. You know what? I notice that you are religious people. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying you and I are the same. We're all seeking after God. We're all religious people. Paul begins by building bridges rather than building walls. When I hear Christians in conversation sometimes, we so often focus on differences, don't we? Is this what our culture does? This is in some ways what we call identity politics. We divide by sex, we divide by age, we divide by political party, we divide by sexual orientation, we divide by religion, we divide by biological sex. We talk about differences and say, if we are different, we can't understand each other and we forget that we have far more in common across our humanity than we do differences. Paul doesn't play that game here. Paul starts off by saying, I see that you are a very religious people. We have that in common. Step number one, if you want to have meaningful spiritual conversations with people, find common ground. Find common ground. There's always common ground you can have with people. One of the things I enjoy on my YouTube channel is interviewing people with very different worldview than I have. I've had conversations with progressive Christians, a number of conversations with atheists. And uh, recently, somebody told me about this YouTuber who looked very interesting. I thought, well, that'd be a great conversation. And she described herself to me. She said, I'm the OG original lesbian YouTuber. That's how she described herself to me. She's been posting stuff for about 12 years and has over 700,000 subscribers. So I reached out to her. I said, hey, full disclosure, I'm a Christian professor. Would you be willing to just have a conversation about your life and your spiritual journey and allow me to ask you some questions? She goes, sure. Actually, I couldn't get a hold of her. And my son goes, just DM her on Instagram. I was like, really? So I DM'd her. She responded in an hour right? <laughs> so we got on, and for about an hour, I just asked her a bunch of questions. And she's not a Christian, describes herself as spiritual. And she described how she grew up in a Catholic home. And I said, I'm just really interested. Given that you had a Catholic home kind of in the Northeast, how did your parents respond to you when you came out as a lesbian? And she goes, oh, my dad was awesome. He said, if God made you this way, wouldn't he want you to be you kind of response? And, he go, and she said to me, she goes, well, what do you think? I said, do you really want to know what I think? She wanted to make sure that wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. She goes, sure. And inside I'm thinking, how do I find and start with common ground? I said, you know what? I agree with your dad that everybody is made in the image of God. The Bible says that all of us, male, female, black, white, rich, poor, all of us are made in the image of God and have value because of that. But where I would differ with your dad is the Bible also in Genesis 3 talks about the fall and that everything has been affected by sin. 
So I'm hesitant to take an attraction or some kind of experience and hold it up as the norm for how we're supposed to live when the Bible has this doctrine of sin. And she's like, as long as you're not saying gay people are only sinful, I said, anybody who tells you that hasn't read their Bible. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what all means in Greek, right? It means all. Yeah, there's nothing fancy to it. It means all. But notice, on a sensitive question like that, I want to speak truth, but want to find common ground which builds bridges so often truth is better received. Step number one, Paul is speaking to this crowd, and he says, I see you're religious. Hey, so am I. We have that in common. And then, of course, he transitions in verse 23, the second part, by saying, what therefore you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. So Paul is basically saying, hey, we have this in common, but you know what? I can help you out. And then he proceeds to do this. Step number one, common ground. Step number two, now what Paul does is he highlights the differences. So like this conversation with that YouTuber, I said, hey, I have this in common with your dad, but here's where we differ. Paul then, in verse 24 through 29, gives this famous speech that is brilliant if you break it down. Let me read you through here. He says this, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Notice, he's finding common ground. Your own poets know this. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, we don't have time to do this, but if you read this passage carefully, it's so interesting. Paul is comparing and contrasting their view of God with his understanding of God. He's basically saying, your view of God is created. My God is the creator. Your view of God is limited. My view of God is sovereign. Your gods are localized. My God is omnipresent. Your God is dependent. My God is independent. Your God needs provision. My God is the provider. Your God is capricious. My God is relational. Your God is distant. My God is present. Your God is impersonal. My God is a loving father. And then what Paul says, you realize, this is the most religious city in the ancient world, but they don't know God. Paul shows up in Athens, one of the most influential cities in the history of the world, and he says, this God you call an unknown God can actually be known. You realize how radical that is? That is an earth-shaking, radical idea. That's why in John 17, in Jesus' final speech with the apostles, what does he say? He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. This speech by Paul is 
absolutely brilliant. So he starts off by finding common ground. And now what he's, then he says, not only do we have this in common, but here's where we differ. Let me bring it clear to you what you worship about God and what I worship about God. Step one, common ground. Step two, differences. But then in step three, Paul calls them to action. Step three, it says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to us by raising him from the dead. Paul calls them to repentance, which challenges three ideas we have about religion. You ever heard somebody say, hey, just live your truth. Paul's like, nope, you can have your beliefs, but you can't have your truth. There is a truth. The other mistake is you get canceled for your mistake. You make one mistake, you're out. Cancel culture. Paul's like, nope, there is forgiveness if you repent. And there's also the idea that all paths lead to God. Paul's like, nope, there's one God, and this one God calls you to repentance. Paul calls to action. So notice the three steps. He finds common ground. He draws differences, and then he calls them to respond. It's simple, yet it's brilliant. Then it's amazing to see how the different people respond. In verse 32, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them were also, remember these names, John Eusis the Eropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Isn't it interesting that there were three kinds of groups that responded? Group number one was the mockers. Sometimes when people mock me, I try to remind myself and not get defensive. I say, I am in good company. They mocked and crucified Jesus. They mocked Paul for speaking truth. The question is, how should we respond when people mock? And I'll be honest with you, when I look on social media, I don't see a lot of Christians responding this way. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know if this is a gender thing or not, but I'm, I, how many of you guys can only do one thing at a time? Males. I think, it, yeah, my, I think it's kind of more of a gender thing. I actually can't, like if we're making dinner and my wife is like, can you cut the onions? I'm like, I'm on the phone. I can't talk on the phone and cut onions. As simple as it is. I was actually driving through McDonald's the other day and I looked at the person, I'm like, wait a minute. They are taking somebody else's order and giving me mine? That's multitasking? I actually couldn't do that job. Well, I do, I was, I was doing this YouTube interview, and usually I have somebody moderate the comments. I don't mind differing comments, but sometimes they get so negative, it distracts from the conversation itself. And I am, while I'm doing the interview, I, of course, forgot this time to have somebody moderate it. I'm seeing these comments get more and more heated. And finally, there's, there's like two or three Christians, and this person presumably not a Christian, and they finally said, why would you come here with this, this attitude? What right do you even have to be here? And I'll never forget how this guy responded. He goes, what right do I have to be here? He said, I've served in our country. And I was profoundly wounded overseas defending your rights to even speak. Don't tell me where I can and cannot come to speak. 
I saw that in the middle of my interview and was like, oh, man, I've got to say something. This is about to blow up. So I turned as best I can remember. I said something like, I said, sir, thank you for your service. I can't thank you enough for your sacrifice. I can understand why if that happened to you, why you would be upset. It makes perfect sense. Why would God allow this? I, I don't know the answer to that. But I believe that God loves you, and I'm grateful that you would come on my channel and even engage in this conversation. Silence. Why? Because the Bible says a gentle word turns away wrath. A soft word, it says in Proverbs, a soft word breaks a bone. In Romans 2.4, it says your judgment leads, oh wait, no, I misread that. Your kindness leads to repentance. To those who mock, we pray for them. And our job is to respond with love and kindness. But what about those who are interested? So some mocked Paul. Others were interested. How do we respond when some people said, we want to hear you more? To me, we follow up and engage. So in any group of people, there's some open to the gospel. There's some who blatantly reject it. And there's some who say, yeah, we just want to hear more. Well, those who want to hear more, engage. Three weeks ago, I posted one of the most inter interesting interviews I've done. Here's the term the guy used to describe himself. He calls himself an atheist New York media elite. That was his term, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but he writes for The New Yorker. It was written for The New York Times, MSNBC, Slate Magazine, uh, outspoken, lived. He actually grew up in Greenwich in the Northeast. He said, Sean, I didn't know any evangelicals growing up. He said, 40% of the men that I knew were gay. Isn't that interesting? Well, he reached out to me and said, would you be willing to have a conversation? Now, because I've been interviewed by different media and not always fairly represented, I had some barriers and some concerns. I looked into him, I'm like, wow, this guy is smart. And he's got genuine desire to have a dialogue with somebody who sees the world differently. You know what he said to me? He goes, I wouldn't go. Somebody started attacking him on Twitter for platforming me. Isn't that interesting? I was like, huh, it never crossed my mind. I'm concerned about who I platformed, that somebody would be worried about platforming me. And he started defending me. I'm like, wow, this atheist journalist is defending me, a Christian professor. He goes, Sean's not in this for money. He goes, there's certain people I wouldn't go on their channel. They're about money. He goes, but he's willing to listen to me. He asks good questions and we find common ground. Isn't that fascinating? And then at the very end, I asked him, I said, are there any questions you have for me? He said, my question is, could we have a follow-up conversation? I'd love to flip the script and interview you about what you believe to share it with people in the media so they can at least have a better understanding of what Christians believe. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible. And I started to realize we have so many misconceptions ourselves about atheists, about people in the media, and they do of us. And partly, we just haven't reached out in relationship, gotten to know people, listen to people, find common ground, and engage those who are interested. That's what Paul did. He's like, you want to hear more? You better believe I will come and I will tell you 
more. The last group are the believers. Now, what's so interesting is some people have said Paul gives this big speech on the Areopagus. There wasn't this big repentance and revival. Paul failed. I don't know about you, but given the success of Paul, I just feel like there's a really high burden of proof before I'm willing to say that Paul failed at anything. Yes, he was human, but maybe that's just me. But what's interesting is people miss. Just like you said, Dathan, you said it's not just about the numbers, right? We want bigger numbers. It's about the people. Remember I told you to remember the name Dionysus the Areopagite? Fourth century church historian Eusebius tells us that Dionysus the Areopagite became the first bishop of Athens. So in Paul's one speech, while he's just traveling through Athens, likely led to the conversion of the first bishop who led the church in Athens. That's amazing. You know what's freeing about this? So when it's all said and done, all God calls us to do is to be faithful. I can't control the results. I can't control if some people mock. I can't control if some people aren't interested. I can control my attitude. I can control if I keep the main thing the main thing. And I can control if I'm willing to engage people and meet them where they're at. You might be thinking, yeah, Sean, that's easy for you. You teach at Biola. You're an apologist. And you're using Paul. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. Friends, I'm telling you, it's not that hard. If we're willing to see ourselves as missionaries, there are opportunities in front of us that we often miss. And it's three steps. Number one, find common ground. Find common ground. Number two, then explain the differences. And number three, call the action. That's it. I found if we approach people in the right way at the right time, far more people than you would think would be willing to have spiritual conversations. And like in the case of Paul, we never know how powerfully God can use us. As you heard earlier, as Dathan mentioned, I'm teaching at night, so if you're staying around, starting tonight in Memorial Chapel at 7 o'clock on 1 Peter. There's five nights, and anybody know, take a wild guess, how many chapters are in 1 Peter? Five. five. Good job. So each night, not seven, each night we're going to take one of the chapters, and it's going to be smaller than this. We're going to discuss it. We're going to dissect it. We're going to talk about it. My challenge to you, if you can only come one night, come one night. Is my challenge over this week is to take the book of 1 Peter. You can read it straight through in 15 minutes. Just read it straight through each day and then come dissect it. 1 Peter is a book for our times. Peter writes it to a church experiencing some hostility from the culture in which people live. And the question is, how do we respond when we are at odds with those around us? Hey, like most of you, I'm up here with my family. I am relaxing and enjoying Hume, but I'm here to minister. Please don't hesitate for like, hey, Sean, I've got a question. If I'm out doing something, saying hi and chatting, if we're at lunch or at a meal, seriously, pull up a, just pull up a chair and sit with us. You are not intruding. We're here to enjoy Hume like you are, but we are here to minister as well. 
Father, thanks for this beautiful place, and we trust and believe that you will just continue to minister through all the staff that's here. Give them energy. Just give them just the supernatural ability to have meaningful spiritual conversations with the people who are coming up here today. We're so grateful, and we pray this in your name. Amen.